All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, nears? What the fucksters? What the fuck, Adelix? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. How are you? Welcome to the show. This is my show. This is my garage. These are my pants that I'm wearing. All right? My shoes. Today, my guest is Harry Shearer. If you don't know who Harry Shearer is, I don't know what to tell you. You might know him from The Simpsons, Spinal Tap, SNL, the Christopher Guest movies, and his long-running radio show, Le Show. His most recent project is a YouTube series called Nixon, The One, Harry Shearer. Brilliant man. And it's interesting. It was uh, it was one of those situations where it's not that I'd heard weird things about him, but I heard he might be a little a little uh, a little uh, cantankerous. But I had a great conversation with with Mr. Shearer. Much respect uh, went both ways, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, what am I going to tell you about? What's going on? What, how the how the show goes since I last talked to you? Well, it was mostly a three day weekend. Worked again with uh, with Rick Shapiro and Bobby Kelly was on on set yesterday. Um, Patton Oswalt was on the show. I worked with him today. Very interesting to work with a dude like Shapiro, Rick Shapiro, who I've known for years. Some of you may know from comedy. You might know him from the uh, the first Louis C.K. Uh, uh, show that was on HBO. He's in some of Louis's movies. But Rick is this incredible force of nature. He, he's done a show. He's done my show before. But I just love the guy, and I've known him for twenty five years. And you know now he's uh, he's suffering a bit from the Parkinson's, but he's fighting it, and it's pretty amazing. Uh, what that kind of fight will will do to a person in the sense of of connecting them to their heart and slowing them down a bit, but also making them focus and and uh, and and sort of adjust in ways that that really weren't there before. He's a he's a very uh, very beautiful guy, beautiful actor, beautiful things going on for Mr. Shapiro. And just when I work with Rick, it's just exhausting and engaging and and exciting, and uh, I'm I'm just thrilled that he's on the show. But he's another guy that, you know, not unlike me, we've been sort of pushed aside or pigeonholed at different points in our careers for our intensity or our attitudes or, and I'm not comparing my talent to his by any means, but just in the way that we're sort of outsiders, you know, and, and, and I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is I watched the 40th anniversary of SNL and, and before I watched, I just watched it the half of it yesterday and half of it today. So not the day it went up, but I, I tweeted something because I saw people starting to live tweet it. And I was I, in my mind, I was like, really, you're going to live tweet that television show. So I said, live tweet hashtag SNL 40. I don't think so. And then I got a little flack from people that, you know, are like they, they took it as like, who are you? Mr. Condescending, Mr. Mr. Uh, hipster guy too good for it or whatever. I was being kind of a dick, but it was really about hashtagging a TV show, but I'm not backpedaling, but there were some accusations that I may still be bitter about what happened at SNL. And because I have this known kind of mild obsession with Lorne Michaels and my my meeting with him, you know, people think that I'm bitter about it. And I got to be honest with you. I watched the show and I and I didn't know what to expect. 
And uh, and you sort of get tired over the years of how SNL repackages itself or how it's constantly presented. I mean, for years when you know when there was a DVD market, when there was a VHS market, you know there was the, there were clips you know, of of different different versions of clip shows being sold all the time, and the repackaging and and sort of reselling of SNL has just been with us almost as long as SNL has. So I was a little bit, um, I guess, resistant, but. I do want to address the idea of bitterness around that meeting. I don't think I am bitter about that meeting. I do think it was an important juncture in my life, and I think I was disappointed for a couple of years. But in real, in reality, there was no way I was ready to handle the responsibility of that show at the time. I'm not sure I could handle it now. So th- there's this idea that you know, certain people are delivered to a type of success, uh, you know, a type of mainstream success, a type of. Um, of power over, you know, millions of people because of their, their, their talent and what they've done with it. I don't know that I'm, I've ever been one of those guys. And I don't know that, that my insecurity enables me to do that. It's, it's a, it's a liability on some level, but I seem to have find, found my niche, but I'm not bitter about it. And I don't know if you people know this, but I feel like I must've talked about it before. The first two seasons of SNL were incredibly important to me. I was, it was, it was just, I was obsessed with it. Uh, you know, I knew I used to do Chevy, Chevy Chase impressions. I used to do, you know, John Belushi impressions. I used to do impressions from the show. I had the SNL book, you know, two or three years in when they released that book, I had the album. I was completely obsessed with the idea of SNL and I was sort of obsessed with Lauren Michaels at an early age. It was a very important thing to me. That show mid seventies, 76, 77, 13, 14 years old. But as time went on, I, I knew I didn't do characters. I knew I wasn't a sketch guy. I knew I wasn't really the guy for that show. But of course, in my heart, I always wanted to be on that show. And just to, and then there was that weird meeting when I, my grandmother took me up to the studio because some kid I knew uh, from camp, his father worked at NBC and set me up. I was supposed to meet Belushi. I ended up meeting a, a, what looked to be a fairly, a fairly high uh, Franken and Davis. But... Uh, but the, the thing was, is that, you know, in retrospect, you know, I, I'm not really bitter. I, I just, there, there, there's something I may need to know about that meeting, but whether or not I, I talk to, to Lauren Michaels or not ever, I mean, I could sit down with Lauren Michaels and he could have no recollection of it all, of, of, of even talking to me. And that would be sort of devastating and heartbreaking. And why do I make it such a big deal? Because it was, that show was so important to me. And I remember even when I was talking to Lauren, I was like that first, that first year, right, buddy? He's like, there's been a lot of good people. And I was so sort of like the mythology of those first couple of years. And that was what was fascinating about watching the, the 40th anniversary. Because I look, man, I my guilty pleasure is schmaltzy entertainment. And when Fallon and Justin Timberlake did the musical opening, I loved it. The, the, I, I liked a lot of it. I, I liked Miley Cyrus's uh singing it's nice like it was kind of interesting to realize that she you know she is sort of this country singer when she wants to be and that was pretty amazing and the the sandler and sandberg thing with the people laughing and there was a reminiscing there and seeing the old clips was great seeing louis on the show was great i thought seinfeld and uh, larry were larry david were great together that was hilarious i love comedy and i and I just found myself, despite whatever bitterness you may think I have or whatever, however resistant I am or haven't really engaged in the show for so many years, I, I watched the whole thing and I had, there was a lot of good, there was a lot of great things about it, but it's really kind of heartbreaking 
I guess because because I'm not married, because I don't have children, I don't know that I'm always aware that I'm aging. I think that if you have people around you who are aging with you, you have some sort of sense of it. But but seeing some of my heroes, you know, on television that, that you know, seeing them at different points in their career through clips and then seeing them on TV and seeing them in high definition, it's it's a little beautiful and a little heartbreaking simultaneously. My point is, is that a lot of that was part of my childhood. You know, that first couple of seasons of the SNL and seeing those people was great. And and my obsession with Lauren is not because I was bitter about what happened. I would have had a different life, I'm sure, if I'd gotten the show. But the one thing you got from watching SNL 40 is that a lot of people went on to nothing and uh, you don't know where they are. And then there was the weirdness with Eddie Murphy coming out. And, you know, you have these expectations and what he what is he battling with? I mean, what struggle does he have with the, you know, the shadow that a younger him casts on him? I don't know. Steve Martin was funny. Uh, Alec Baldwin was funny. It was great to see Norm and Will Ferrell. I, you know, look, what can I tell you? Don't misunderstand my obsession with Norton Michaels or with early SNL or with that fact that I didn't get on as bitterness. Look, I'm, I'm happy I'm making a living. You dig? All right. I was also good seeing Colin. It was good seeing a lot of people on there. I, I, I enjoyed uh, SNL 40. I enjoyed it. I, had, I got some good laughs. I was happy to see some people, happy to see some friends, happy to see that audience of uh, actors and stuff. Looked like a fun place to hang out. Was I jealous I wasn't there? No, because I, I don't know. I, you know, I like to be involved in things. Maybe I was a little, maybe I would have liked to have been there. But again, not bitter. Not bitter that I didn't get on SNL. Okay? I'm just going to keep repeating it to myself. I had a cup of coffee today the first one in almost three months, and uh, it punched my face from the inside. (laughs) Good, good. Okay, let's talk to Harry Shearer, folks. And the bumper music here comes from our sponsor, The Loop Loft, featuring Charlie Hunter on guitar and Eric Harland on drums. It's a very odd thing. Because I watched a, a couple of the Nixons, yeah, and it's not a comedy. Well, it is and it isn't. No, I get okay. I mean, well, you, these I mean, are. I call it a, a very dark comedy. But it's it's taken from the it's actual real. transcript. Yeah, it's, it's not real, made up. Uh, right. Yeah, it's just but selected. Yeah, for I, comic value. Right. Yeah. But you're drawing from the exact transcripts yeah. and the tapes. Yeah. And you're reenacting scenes of Nixon yeah. in certain situations. Yes. Yes. And the makeup is Nixon makeup. Yes. And you look like Nixon. Yeah. You're acting like Nixon. Yes. Dressed like Nixon. And so the the idea is if you contextualize by choosing these segments that yes. they will read, you will see something. It, it actually serves to humanize him a bit more than I thought it would. I'm not saying he's a good human. Well, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. You got it. Uh, I mean, you can't... If you listen to the tapes yeah. and you try to perform them precisely, I yeah. mean... We literally were listening to him, and you did perform him precisely. Yes, I mean you can you can compare our performances to the tapes, and it's pretty eerie. Yeah, they have to come out as human beings. Yeah, you know, right? Willy nilly, they have to. I mean, it's not a it's not even a choice. It's so, just so even the comedy of of what he was doing before the resignation speech. Yeah, 
was like I get how you're 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 cutting it in the cho- in the choices you're making, but but the comedy was is that you know he was sort of trying to distract everybody and himself from what was about to happen. Well, yes. Uh, although I thought while we were rehearsing it, I thought of what else was going on because uh-huh. that that scene I'd watched that scene forever. It had been bootlegged around. It was a videotape. It was the only thing in the series that was not from his from one of the cameras that were on yeah. before he went yeah. before the cameras. Yeah, the, uh-huh. the CBS engineer hit the record button uh, oh, when yeah, he saw yeah, it. Yeah. And so I'd memorized that scene and we I watched got stoned and watched it with friends and uh-huh. you know I mean it was like part of my DNA. And it always just struck me, okay, this is goofy. This guy who has no gift for small talk, no affection for being around strangers uh-huh. matter of fact people creep him out yeah ironically since the name of his committee to reelect was the committee to reelect the president creep right. yeah um and now in his final moments as president what does he choose to do chit chat chit chat with the crew <laughs> it just seemed fucking goofy and then while we're rehearsing because you can't help it when you're acting you yeah. have to figure out what the fuck is going on right it it dawns on oh, it, the the door was opened by the tape stopped when the speech ended. Yeah. But uh, while we were doing the show, I ran across a, a memoir online of, uh, by a Nixon White House staffer who had yeah. been in the room that night. Uh-huh. And he said what the last words Nixon spoke before he walks out the door, which is on August 8th. He says to the crew, have a Merry Christmas, fellas. And it suddenly clicked. Because that's the goofiest thing in the world. Right. And I realized what was going on. He's starting his next campaign. Right, and the next campaign is all those guys go home and they say he wasn't upset, he wasn't mad, he was joking with us. He's a nice guy. Uh-huh. He even wished us a merry Christmas. So he thought he was coming back. He's of course he did. He's <laughs> plotting the next campaign. That's who he was. Hmm. That didn't pan out. It did. He became you know this respected foreign policy Alain's grease among but, people who believe in that shit. But that, wasn't that because they let him off? I mean, in a sense that uh, even though he made this grand gesture, that the that that the uh, you the mean politi- the pardon? You mean the pardon? The pardon and the political associates he had, and framing him that way, uh, there were plenty of of, of right wing ideologues in colleges, and and to start framing him as a public uh, a na- uh, international policy mastermind. Yeah, well, he it was because of those unreadable books he wrote, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah the, the but I I think he knew the pardon was in the works, right? I think he I think he. Are you obsessed with Nixon at all? Uh, Fascinated. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I don't dream about it. Well, but what's interesting is is knowing that that the age difference between us, I'm 53, you're what, 70? Yeah. Is that, you know, you live through it. I mean, I've talked to some people recently. I've talked to peers of yours. I've I've talked to- uh, I have no peers, sir. Yes, you do. (laughs) I talked to Mr. McKean. Okay. But, uh, you know, I always had a certain envy of, of, of you guys who actually- we're, we're, uh... You envied people who lived through Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I envy people that were there, you know, when everything know. turned. Yeah. yeah, in, yeah. The, in the mid to late 60s, where you were at an age where it meant something to you. Yeah. yeah. That, like, you could actually feel everything changing around you, and you kind of had to decide where you were going to fall and what you were going to do, and there was some weird wide open playing field in terms of what you could get away with. Yes, and and you did get faced with those choices. I mean, I I uh, literally sat in an office in the federal building in downtown Los Angeles, across from a lieutenant in the army. Uh-huh. There was a yellow stripe painted on the floor between us, and he invited me three times to walk across that stripe and accept induction into the United States Army. And three times I refused, and he said, "Okay, you can go home." 
But were you were were you drafted? No, they were I, asking you. They wanted. They were trying to draft volunteer, me, and I was refusing induction. Okay, and you uh, could just do that. Yeah, you you could do that. You faced, of course, the the fearsome prospect of federal prosecution. But uh, I had uh, a lawyer who had gotten all the Beach Boys off. <laughs> You got a Beach Boy lawyer. Yeah, I got the Beach Boy lawyer. <laughs> Not that Brian needed a lot of help in staying out of the army, but the other guys might. Have. <laughs> Brian, Brian was a, a self saver, uh, but uh, he said, "You know, your file is so full of of st- mistakes that the draft board made because they were they were basically volunteers trying to enforce law and they didn't know anything about the law." Right. He said, "No, no prosecutor will prosecute you." Yeah. He said, "You're you're good." So, uh, so I, in some ways, the draft was for suckers. No. No, the draft was for people who couldn't find the uh, Beach Boys lawyer, the Beach Boys lawyer, <laughs> or who couldn't fake, you know, uh, a certain kind of mental illness uh, credibly, right. right? Or you know, who couldn't stay up for seventy-two hours and and and, <laughs> not, and not pee for that length of time and right. screw up their body. Yeah. I mean, there were all sorts of ways out, but you did face those choices, you yeah. know, and it it was a meaningful time, and of course. You had something then as a result that we didn't have uh, during Iraq and we're not having now, mm. which was you had professors coming out of their uh, little uh, little offices mm-hmm. and people who understood the history of Southeast Asia and having these odd things called teach-ins where they actually explained what the fuck was going on. Teachers who could speak their minds. Teachers who could speak their minds and who could talk to crowds yeah. and could say, here's the here's here's where we are. Here's what we've gotten into. Here's how this started. Mm-hmm. Here's what we've we've picked up the French colonial mantle in our walking. And perhaps here's why it's wrong. And per- yeah, they didn't really load that. Right. It was basically just explanatory for right. kids who had never heard of this place before they got a draft notice. Would that we had that in Iraq, would that we had that now, but of course the urgency of the draft is gone, and so the kids would rather just, you know, text each other. Everything's so compartmentalized. It's not, it's not even, it's weird, it's not even a matter of, of preference of texting, it just seems like some things happen in a different world. Well, if you your ass isn't on the line, you don't need to, yeah. you're not as curious about... <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's as simple as that. When you, were, when, when you were almost drafted, was what was that, 67? It was 68. Were you in show business still? I was. I was on the radio with the Credibility Gap. As a matter of fact, by sixty-eight. Yeah, yeah. I just started, and I I took a cassette machine in to record my my refusal induction thing. Induction. They took my my tape machine away from me. So. They did. Oh yeah. Did they give it back to you? Uh, you don't know. No, I don't remember. <laughs> but but it was weird because I, oddly enough, that wasn't what was primary in my mind at that moment. <laughs> it was, it whether, was whether you were going to get the tape. Yeah. No, it was whether I was going to stay out of the army. Yeah. Live. Yeah. Live. But it's interesting because there was a shift in, in from what I could see to a, a, your later show business career or, or your reentry as an adult mm-hmm. and what you went through as a child. There was a gap there. Mm-hmm. When, now, you started very young. Seven. Seven. And you've, was that a choice of yours? Is it something you always wanted to do? I mean, I don't know what kind of choices you make at seven or why it happened. Uh yeah, I I you know it was it was laid before our family by this woman who'd become a children's agent. We had known her because she was my piano teacher from the age of four, and she said she's changing. Where'd career. you grow up down in L.A. In, in, what part in uh, in uh, West Adams? Uh huh. Which is uh, you know yeah, it's right yeah. by it's it's sort of by downtown. It's a it's a it's a community that's being gentrified at this point. It has been being gentrified since for you were as a long kid. as I've known it. Yeah. 
but it was uh, these, it, aside from South Pasadena, it's the largest collection of, or has been the largest extant collection of Craft. original California bungalows. Oh, Craft, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And uh, beautiful neighborhood, 80-foot-tall 80, 80 palms. Uh-huh. Uh, my my house is now the number two westbound lane of the 10. No, it's gone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But um, so she said, I'm going to be a children's agent. Can I try to get Harry some work? And my parents were both European immigrants, and they thought this was some kind of joke. But they said okay, and she and they knew I was. So they were first gen. You you're first generation. I'm first generation. American. And they knew I loved radio and television. Uh-huh. I was like, I have this. My dad's friend made home phonograph uh-huh. records. Yeah, he had a lathe yeah. at home, and so there's a phonograph record of me when I was three years old, and he was asking me what what are my favorite shows, and uh-huh. I tell him what nights they were on what networks they were on who sponsored them what cities they originated in i mean you, radio I, radio at yeah. that time three yeah so yeah uh so when she calls up she has an audition for the jack benny program so you knew jack from the radio oh my god yeah the I best mean, right yeah the best yeah and and you get the you get the gig aced it baby yeah aced it baby and you meet jack yes do you have Mr. do you have actual memories of yeah, him? oh yeah yeah the 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 key ones were Third show I did for him, he comes out afterwards, radio show, yeah. hugs me and gives me, he's had a transcription made of the show while we were performing it and gives it to me, uh-huh. which was basically saying, you're in. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. You're in. And then uh, a couple shows later, uh, the first time we're doing, a, we're doing a read-through of the script and I do a little, add a little, little nuance in uh-huh. the line and uh, it's the first time I made him laugh and he just slams his hand on the table and throws his head back and cackles and i mean it's that was it mind-blowing oh i want more of that but was more the, of that please do you think that because of those experiences and because of that early uh you know that connection to radio that you you find you love radio because you obviously love radio i love radio um partly from that's where i started but partly from uh <laughs> it's cost efficient. It is. It's erg efficient. Yeah, it's very erg efficient. Yeah. Uh, I remember on the on the morning David Letterman show. Yeah, he had a band leader. This was before he ran into Schaefer, and he had a, a black band leader named Frank Owens. And Schaefer and I always used to joke about this. Yeah, always remember this line. And uh, just one morning to make conversation, Letterman says, "Frank, if you could live anywhere you wanted to, where would you live?" And Frank Owens says, uh, "Las Vegas, Dave." And Dave says, "Really? Why?" The ease. <laughs> the, the ease, and that's my answer about radio. The ease, yeah, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. So me and Frank Owens. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you were in in movies and television shows for you know throughout your childhood. Yeah, yeah, and that was what you were doing. Yeah, I was in the robe. I was the first Cinemascope child. Wow. Yeah. Did you have other friends who were actors? No. As a child, the no. way you were just still like at home with your folks. Home with my folks. What did your dad to, do? My dad had trained as an opera singer in Vienna, and then you know came over here and, and ran a gas station at Jefferson and Figueroa in downtown Los Angeles, right across from Giant Felix Chevrolet. Could he sing? Yeah. And your uh, mom was what? My mom had trained, uh, had gone to college originally to be a paleontologist, then came over here, studied accounting and bookkeeping, and was a bookkeeper for a small oil company. And were they running from Hitler? Uh, they were running towards him. <laughs> <laughs> but I 
Yeah. Is that why they? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the rest of their. <laughs> Give me some Hitler. They yelled. They. <laughs> this guy doesn't seem like a good fella. Yeah, I know. I like. I like the cut of his jib. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, they were the only survivors of. of oh, really? Their mutual family, their respective families. Really. They got out. And, so you grew up with that. The yeah. weight. The weight of that. The weight. And, and and just the, the teeniness of the family. Yeah, and did were you brought up religious? In a way, uh, I was made to go to a uh, temple. Sure, me and, too. Yeah, uh, Friday nights at bar mitzvah, uh-huh. high holidays, uh-huh. and then at fifteen, my mom, my dad had passed away by then. My at fifteen, my mom admitted she didn't believe in God, and I said, "Well, why did you put me through all that?" Said, well, I wanted you to know what it was like to be a Jew. <laughs> it's important, isn't it's it? It's important, it's, but is it important? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it. I can't really make up my mind about that because. Uh, when you're in a tribe, it feels good. Yeah. But when you look at tribalism <laughs> as an overall human phenomenon, it, it may not be the best of things. It, it's unavoidable. So but there's you... a sense of community, a sense oh, of, yeah. uh, of shared... Uh... I was I was talking to a friend yesterday uh, who is a, a non-practicing Jew and his wife is an atheist. And, uh-huh. she, and, and he, said, he was trying to figure out why she loves to go to a temple. And he said, uh, I, I forget whom he was quoting, but he said... Uh, uh, somebody had said, I don't go to temple to be with God. I go to temple to be with Jews. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> In this town, though, I mean, it's not hard to find Jews. No. So, all right, so you do this, you, you do the show businessing throughout all, your entire childhood. Yeah. You're good at it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You, you're a good actor. I'm, I'm working. I'm yeah. a working actor, working child Making actor. Making money. Yeah. And Putting it away. Are you? As per the Jackie Cooper law. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that was the law? Yeah. It is a real law? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, really? Yeah, because he, he was a child actor and, and the parents frittered away his money, so there was a law passed to prevent that from happening. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And so uh, did you put it in bonds? <laughs> Do you still have any of that money? <laughs> that money got me through my, my uh, 20s, what some did, of it. But when know. did you get dis- disillusioned or, or, or sort of like decide- About show business? Yeah. Uh, every day every fucking morning (laughs) (laughs) when i woke what time is it yeah uh when the eyes open um no as a kid it was great yeah it was absolutely brilliant i had my if you have sane parents yeah it's the most fun way to spend a childhood Uh, being on movie sets and going on tv studios yeah 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 yeah, hanging out with the with with great grown-ups you know i didn't like the child thing anyway yeah i thought it was lame i did too yeah and it was like what I'm supposed to care about this shit? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, these little critters and yeah. the student government and all that crap. Nah. And, oh, so it was. It was a. It was an answer to a prayer. I didn't. This was an opportunity to hang out with grownups in a. In a uh, shall we say, in light of what we know now, a uh, a more wholesome way than other kids had. Sure, <laughs> and out of, out, uh, and other than Jack Benny, who were some of the heroes that you were able to spend time with? I was on the Ann Southern show. Yeah, uh, who was a great comic actress of that era. Uh, I was on the Hitchcock show. Um, I was. Uh, so you work with Alfred Hitchcock? You know, he he would come in and bank his stuff long. Yeah. Oh, right, right. You know, he comes standing sideways, standing sideways, and, and walk away in the shadow. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't actually work with him, uh, but Benny was the one that you know really. I, I I mean, I was worked for him for eight years. So did you have a relationship throughout his life? You know, I didn't see him for a long time, and then. Uh, Albert Brooks and I were working on a record together. Which Con- record? Uh, it was the second one. It was called A Star Is Bought. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And uh, the premise of it was that every track on the record was 
aimed at a different radio format. Uh-huh. So that at then and still now, uh, there were radio stations that played old radio shows. Right. So we made an old radio show, uh, you know, supposedly uh, Albert's prenatal work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so following the format of, of the old comedy shows, um, you know, Benny would do reciprocal guest appearances with Hope and yeah, yeah. Fred Allen and all that. So, and Albert's dad had been a second banana for Eddie Cantor. Uh-huh. So he knew that world. So we wrote a show where Benny was paying a reciprocal. Albert had been on Benny's show the week before, and right. Benny was paying a reciprocal visit. And we thought, well, come on, who better? Right. I was a kid on his show. Albert was Park Your Carcass's kid. Yeah. Come on. So we called up uh, uh, Benny's manager, Irving Fine, and said we wanted to talk to Jack Benny about it. And he made an appointment. It was right around the corner from Nibbler's. Do you remember Nibbler's? No. It was on the Wilshire Boulevard uh-huh. in Beverly Hills. And uh, so we had a little coffee in Nibbler's to, you know, yeah. rehearse our pitch. Uh-huh. And we went in and we described it to Benny. And uh, he said, look, fellas, I've been on television. I've been in movies. I've been on stage. Why would I go back to radio? <laughs> we said, no, Mr. Benny, it's not a radio show. It's a, And we went through the right. expression. I know, but fellas, why would I do radio? And clearly his manager had gotten the idea wrong. Right. And that was it. He had He'd locked in. He had been briefed and locked in. And you never saw two more disappointed people standing in front of Nibblers than <laughs> Albert and me. Because <laughs> you couldn't explain to him. Couldn't get through. How uh, old was he at that time? Well, he was uh, up in his 80s. And his manager was probably what? Seven, oh, God, yeah. Well, his manager really was around for a long time more because I hired him as an actor much later. Oh, really? Yeah. For which movie? For a, a show for HBO called Viva Shafe Vegas. He played uh-huh. Paul Schaefer's manager. Okay. But I heard Irving, this is this is a lesson on don't let your, your representatives live longer than you. Yeah. Because Irving had lived longer than Benny, had written a book about Benny. And I heard him driving up the coast of California. I was listening to a radio show out of San Francisco. Uh-huh. And, and the host said, what was one of Jack Benny's uh, great, great comedy bits? And now I'm hearing Irving Fine doing Jack Benny's material. You don't <laughs> want your material, <laughs> no, want your, your manager your doing manager your material. Kid, no, they're not supposed to talk no. <laughs> in front of the microphone. No. All right, so so after you go through this whole childhood, did, it, was there a time where you're like, uh, like my, my image of it is that once the 60s hit, there was some. Was there ever a higher calling? Was there an idea that, like, you know, maybe show business is like not the thing? That <laughs> no, this had nothing to do with the with the, with the sixties. This was uh, earlier than that. I just thought this was a nice thing to do as a kid. Yeah, but you know, I was expecting to be like a serious person when I grew up. You know, I was, I was a grown up. A grown up. Yeah, I was highly educated. I was very smart. Where did you go to school? I went to UCLA. Yeah, LA High before that. Yeah. John Burroughs Junior High before that. Um, but I mean, I zipped through school. I, I really did. I just, uh, I got Phi Beta fucking Kappa for that matter, you know? I don't think it's re- normally referred to in that. No, that's how it's, people I, who actually get it can refer to can it. Can like refer to that. that. Yeah. I, 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 it's, it's of a piece with when Derek Smalls played uh, in New York at a very revered venue, the first words <laughs> out of his mouth were Carnegie fucking hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was expecting to be in either in teaching or in journalism or in government. Uh, and I actually dabbled in all three of them. I worked for a year at the state legislature in Sacramento. I taught for taught school for two years in Compton. Uh, they happened to be draft dodges, but they also happened to be what I was interested in doing. And I worked, wrote journalism. I worked for Newsweek, uh, covered the first uh, moonshot out of JPL in Pasadena. 
uh, covered Watts Riot, you know. You so did? I, yeah, so I, I tried all that stuff. You've had like nine lives, it seems. Yeah. In a way. Uh, kind of. Yeah. And then, uh, when did the music, uh, were you playing music all the way through? Well, I'd been taking piano lessons. I, I, kept, I know, but I, sometimes I, I, I had riffs. And I went back to piano lessons. My, my mom found me a really serious piano teacher uh, who could trace her lineage through Czerny back to Beethoven. Uh-huh. And uh, I was the only real? one. Yeah, and I was the only one of her students who was not being groomed for a concert career. You know, they're all practicing eight hours a day. She was lucky to get one out of me. And did you stick with it? Eight years. But I mean, can you play now? I can play. I didn't. You know, I, I ran fleeing from it for years, and that's why I took up the, the bass. terror, the okay. terror of having to read. Yeah, uh, I picked up the bass and learned it, learned to play it by ear. But now I've gone back to piano and I can play it, kind of. I mean, I have a friend who's a composer and I, I've learned one of his pieces and, you know, so I can I can do that, kind of. And, and you like to play. I do like to play, yeah. It's nice, right? It's great. It's a wonderful instrument, as is the bass. I, I fell in love with the upright bass. I mean... Yeah, I love to play, too, just in general. Having that ability to do that's very... Uh, calming, yeah, calming. Definitely. And, uh, definitely. you know, when I was, I was on tour with this play in England uh, for um, the month of September, and I got to re-experience what it's like being... Uh, in a in a life without a musical instrument nearby, and it's not fun. Yeah, you just need you need it just yeah. to, just to grab it. Yeah, hang yeah. out. And then my wife, who is a piano play, proper piano player, yeah, uh, always raved about you know the difference between she play uh, a keyboard, but the difference with having a big resonant piece of wood, yeah, you know, vibrating. Yeah. Next to it. So when I discovered the upright bass, it was the same thing, except that big resonant piece of wood was right here, right yeah. on the right on the thigh, you know. And so that was later in life. Yeah, that was when we we started doing the Folksman. It a, was that was the first time you started playing the upright bass. First yeah. time you even tried it. Yeah, when we, it was Saturday Night Live, and we made up the this bit about the Folksman, uh, which came, which, which became the Mighty Wind guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But it was it came out of an interview that we had done for Rolling Stone when Spinal Tap came out, right? And the uh, writer said, "Well, what are you guys going to do next?" And Michael just was bullshitting and said, "I don't know, maybe we'll do a folk trio." And so when he, Chris and I were on Saturday Night Live and Michael guest hosted, yeah. And uh, this was like four or five months later, and we were, you know, searching for something to do. I said, "How about that folk trio thing?" And that's how. It, and then so I had to pick up the bass to to play it to be able to be in that trio and the guy who had taught me bass originally jim fielder of blood sweat and tears uh had taught me left-hand technique of an upright player so how'd you know that guy my through my first wife who was also a singer um so he had taught me left-hand upright technique so i had to change that for for the electric guitar to right. like guitar technique. So then you change it back. Yeah, but now I at least knew what, it, knew what it was. It's interesting how long you've fucking known these guys, though. Like, you, you know, like the the fact that you go back that far with Guest and Albert Brooks and how, well, when you did the credibility gap, how did you get involved with that? I talked to him about, uh, he met- David. Uh, yeah, back east. Yeah. And they went to school together, yeah. right? And, yeah. And, Pennsylvania yeah, somewhere. Pittsburgh, Carnegie Tech. Yeah. And then where do you meet up with these guys? I'm I joined the credibility gap. It was it had started as this renegade group of straight news guys. Except yeah. they weren't straight. They were they were, you know Clowns. They were they were vipers. Yeah. And uh so um and this was a a, a, a radio station that was always second in the market, the second rated top right. forty station, yeah. which yeah. is like, you know, that'll get you a ride on the bus. Right. So uh, the news director convinced the management to let it go a little uh, kind of, you know, this was the 60s. Right. You could, the, the magical thing about that time was, and why it was exciting to be part of it, is that uh, 
it's that magical moment when the guys in charge don't know what the formula is. Right. They don't know how to who the audience is, and they don't know what the formula is. And change quickly. And, and yeah, and then you can get some shit done. Right. So that was when he could pitch management on the idea of letting the news kind of morph into this comedy thing. Yeah. And then the comedy guys did it for a while, and, but got a little, you know, blast, too crazy, blasted out by yeah. it. Well, it was just a, it was a three shows a day. It was a really oh, okay. hard gig. Yeah. So they were looking for somebody to kind of come in, and I'd been doing radio commercials for this rock venue which was also a movie venue in hollywood um across the street from the palladium you know that building Uh on sunset it was called the kaleidoscope it became the aquarius theater but Uh and it was run by the two guys who later ran the la the original la film festival and uh so i couldn't afford to buy time for the for the rock and roll shows on the on the top on the number one top 40 station so i was buying time on krla and the salesman who was selling me the time said hey they're looking for somebody to do this show so i sent in a i i Made a tape at home, drove to Pasadena, dropped it on the desk of the receptionist, ran out the front door, drove home. By the time I got home, there was a message on my on my answering machine saying, yeah. you're hired. Can you start tomorrow? Who was that? Who called you? The assistant of Lure, when, a woman named Stephanie Greenblatt. So, and you'd not done any comedy other than TV parts and this and that here and there. I had been an editor of the humor magazine at UCLA, so I had edited like six or seven issues of uh, a humor magazine written a lot of the stuff for the magazine in the 60s late 60s in the no in, in early like 64 oh so early but every university had their humor magazine that's how i met terry gilliam as he was editing a uh, fang which was the humor magazine over at occidental right oh really he was right here yeah and he grew up in panorama city oh my god yeah and uh so he had to get out and uh so we would send each other you know you'd see other campuses and the realist was around right the realist was around my god was the realist around yeah it was that something that was on your radar when you were in college? oh my god i remember having these impassioned arguments with people there was this legendary piece in the realist the parts left out of the william manchester book do you know that is that the lbj thing or yeah yeah <laughs> yeah need we say on that? do we want to say right. i talked to krasner on the show i went up and saw him yeah. yeah i spent two hours with him oh my god what a guy yeah but have you discussed? No, the, no, I don't think I've discussed the, that. That it was LBJ. All right. Well, let, let's set this. Let's set the stage. Okay. Eight months after the assassination, this guy William Manchester writes this very ponderous tome, "Death of a President," mm-hmm. and uh, and so Krasner apes this style perfectly to write the chapter that was left out, and the chapter that was left out supposedly was on the flight back from Dallas to Washington on Air Force One. There's Jackie, there's LBJ, and there's the body. Yeah. And Jackie's back in the passenger compartment, and LBJ is up with the body. And actually, at the time, I don't know if Krasner knew how dick-proud LBJ was. It turns out LBJ was as dick-proud as Milton Berle. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, but he has LBJ stick his dick in the neck wound. Yeah. And fuck it. Yeah, exactly. What is, and, uh, as outrageous as that sounds, it's still outrageous. It's still outrageous. It, I'm, I'm, I'm outraged that I said it. No, but what were the arguments you had about that? Whether it was just appropriate, you no, know, whether it was true, <laughs> whether it was true, whether it was real, because it, it seemed plausible. Because, because no, it didn't seem plausible. But Krasner's mastery of the style was so supreme mm-hmm. that he'd convinced me that somehow. This, this was, was scene, really. This was a shockingly real scene that, they, of course, had to be left out was, of the book. Was that one of those moments where, because, like, I mean, you're sort of considered a satirist, you know, as mm-hmm. as as that goes, 
You know, like because it's hard to define that word, really. Yeah. But certainly, with the with your history in terms of political satire and satirizing in general, was that was that one of the moments where you realized that it can run, it can cut this close and it can be this real and it can be that satire is powerful because it's that provocative. Oh my God, yes, and that the the getting the style of your target of your intended or or of the frame that you're using exactly right is so powerful it's important that's very important very 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 three varies because well no because that's sort of what you did you know with and guest as well and and mckean and those movies certainly yeah but but it carries right through but But, a lot of the stuff the albert brooks uh uh real life was which you co-wrote co-wrote so that was always sort, and and then even the credibility gap was doing something that could not could have been misunderstood as real news for a little while. Oh right? my God! Yes, yes, and you know, uh, it it was sort of we we evolved. Certainly, meeting Albert helped me evolve what my part was in that show in the credibility, in the credibility gap? from. Well, how in, was Albert involved? Well, he wasn't. He just was around and friend of David's. So um, now I join. Now uh, it's me and the newsmen. Now one of the other. These are new- real newsmen. Real newsmen. They were the guys who used to say, "Caroly News at five o'clock." <laughs> yeah, Flash yeah. and Caroly <laughs> weather right ahead of much more music. <laughs> they all had the big voices. Sure. You know? And uh, so now one of the guys who's been doing the comedy, he'd been doing LBJ's voice on the shows, and he's now paranoid. He thinks he smokes a lot of dope, and he yeah. thinks the FBI's after him, and he doesn't want to do this anymore. So right. now we're looking for another guy. Yeah. Of course. Now we realized years later he wasn't paranoid. They were after him, but <laughs> were they? No, <laughs> they were after other people. But they, so they were keeping an eye on people. So I'm, one of the people who would come in and do female voices occasionally, a wonderful mm. actress named Sally Smaller, still around, lovely woman. She said when when she found out that we were looking for somebody, she said, "Well, I have an answering service. She didn't have a machine. She had yeah. an answering service." Sure which was people at a switchboard would take your calls and take your messages. Yeah. Immortalized in the movie, Bells Are Ringing. Yeah. Uh, and she said, there's this guy who takes my messages and gives them to me, and he's really funny. Yeah. So we said, okay, well, tell him to come in. We'll meet him. It was David Lander. Really? Yeah, that's how he got the job. He was a funny message giver on, on the answering machine. But but was it was he trying to be funny? Or yeah, was he, of course okay. he was. He right. was Hollywood. Yeah. he was. Everybody's auditioning all the time. Right. And then he, after he, we hire him, he says, oh, you got to meet my friend McKean. Oh, you got to meet my friend McKean. Always talking about my friend McKean. Yeah. I didn't even know Michael's first name for two years. But yeah. It was my friend McKean. Yeah. And Michael finally comes out and he comes into play and we just, oh, okay then. Yeah. All right. yeah. Yeah. And that was it? Yeah. And uh, so you guys were on the radio for a while. Yeah. We were on two years. Yeah. At, uh, three shows a day and then we got fired. And then we moved to another station and we were on one show, one 15-minute show a day for another year. And then that whole station was cleaned out. And, and you started doing it live a bit? Started doing live shows. Because uh, I, like, I can't imagine, like when I talk to McKean and I talk to um, Ed Begley Jr. Mm-hmm. And I talk to guys who were doing like radical stuff around that time. It feels like that, you know, L.A., for that type of comedy, it was a very small town. And like it se- sort of seemed like everybody kind of knew each other and th- they were sort of running in the same circles. Is that possible? Yes and no. I mean, you... you uh, Like, it's not like it is today. It's all blown out and blown up and nothing seems to be that relevant unless uh, larger powers de- declare it relevant. Was it... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, in that sense. Uh, well, it was easier to, to make a little mark. I mean, we were on the radio. We were on the radio on a... On a second rank rock and roll station 
and we were getting more mail than than the, the rest of the station, the DJs or anybody. People were into it. People were into it. Uh, had it been, had there been satellite distribution in those days, we would have been nationwide. We might have been, uh, you know. But uh, you were also on the pulse of what was happening. Oh my God, yeah. We were doing real newscasts. It started out as real newscasts, yeah. and then. You know, some story that we decided would was fodder for a sketch would veer off, and suddenly it would be you're in this thing. And I, what I was saying before is, as time went on, I certainly, and I think the other guys, got more interested in making this stuff sound realer. Right. It had sounded like comedy sketches originally. After uh, Ori- right. originally, right. Well, I got that album Woodstick. Yeah, that was the, that was sort of a, a, a emblematic of our comedy sketch days. Well, you had a premise. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. And we were trying to. Ma- the, by that time, it was a record. We were trying to make it sound a little realer, but the the, 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 the sketches on our first station were really sounded like comedy sketches. So you're looking to be like Orson Welles wore the a world. A little more, a yeah. little more, trying to get a little more, you know, uh, uh, into into stylistic stuff and and fool the listener a little bit. So yeah. people wouldn't, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they wouldn't Just give know. them a little j- jolt. You but know? you guys were sort of at the cutting edge of that. I well, mean, we in the Firesign Theater were right. sort of, a, a, you know, Pursuing, but pursuing the same kind of sonic adventures with different different kind of comedy. But you were actually agendas. on the radio. Were they on the radio? Yeah, yeah. They had a show on KPFK. So there was I, four guys on on doing a comedy show on KPFK. I don't know four guys about doing, them. Yeah, they were they they were. I, mean, much, I know I know they're funny and they're respected, but I never listened to their records. The records are are interesting to listen to. I don't think they're laugh out loud funny often. Yeah. They're very clever. Yeah, uh, they're almost like linear descendants in a way of the goons uh-huh. uh in terms of sort of uh, uh surrealism right uh com- surrealism is not my bad comedy surrealism yeah um but they were i think uh lauded and deservedly so for their ad- adventurousness in uh the audio production of those records they right. were brilliant they were yeah. really brilliant so you're hanging out with gaston and lander and Albert Brooks and and these are hilarious guys. Yeah, and you still friends with Albert? No, that end badly. Yeah, <laughs> you you got a reputation, Harry. Me? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you want me to talk about it? Yeah, we can talk about it. But let's get to the well, let's let's put it in context. You want to go outside and talk about it? I do. Maybe at the end of this, <laughs> no, okay. I'm gonna have to bring the mics out. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, I don't have any beef with you. You said you said a thing that I quote constantly. What's that? I don't know if you even remember. I interviewed you uh, when I was on Air America, and I'm not sure. I don't remember what it was for. Yeah. Uh, but it was a phone interview. Yeah. And you said that uh, that stand-up comedy is controlling the reason why people laugh at you. Oh, why people go into comedy. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is, to, is to control why people laugh at you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. That's well, the, I mean, I, you know, it made me think of that. I what? was my third or fourth Jack Benny show. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents used to sit in this booth above the stage, which mm-hmm. was called the client's booth, where yeah. the advertisers sat. Right. And they said, one day, we just want to sit in the audience and see the show from that side. Yeah. So don't look for us up there. We won't be there this time, but you'll be fine. And, uh, okay. So now the, the uh, before the show, we're always introduced to the audience by Don Wilson, the announcer of the show. We're standing in the, in the corridor between two studios, and the door is open, and we hear Don call our names and we walk out and take a bow and sit down and get ready to do the show so i'm talking to somebody probably no i I don't know who it was uh eight eight Mm -hmm. years old schmoozing Mm -hmm. and uh, i hear harry harry and i 
walk out to take my bow, and instead of applause, I get a huge laugh. And of course, I look down to see if my zipper is undone, and no, it's not. And I, fuck, (laughs) bad feeling, bad feeling. (laughs) And I sit down. Mel Blanc, the great Mel Blanc, is sitting down already, and I and I can't see my parents, so I'm just like I can't see them in the audience. I'm just feeling very lost. And he said. He was uh, announcing Mary Livingston. He was calling Mary, not Harry. That's <laughs> <laughs> so you want to control the laugh. <laughs> Mel, uh, Mel Blank, you had a relationship with that guy. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had a 12-year-old. A he had a kid who was the same age as me. So, uh, you know. That I, one's been fascinating. Yeah, I think he just took a fatherly interest in me. I don't mean in the Catholic sense. I know. Yeah, it was, but it was very, you know. Did very, you get to see him work? I didn't get to see him work. He what gave he, me two cells of Looney Tunes cartoons, two yeah. original cells, and I'm mortified to say that we didn't know how to take care of them, and I just would watch over the years as the, they deteriorate. the paint would flake off them. Did uh, did he do voices around you, though? Just on he... the show. Oh, yeah. Just on the, just on, the, the on... stuff for the Benny show, you know. Oh, like, that was, but you saw him work. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, he was brilliant and effortless. It seemed effortless. You know, he did this guy who was like a... a well, he did the sound of Jack Benny's old car. He did? Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't oh, get... Really? No, I can't even do it. Uh, yeah, he did the, of the car starting and... <laughs> did all that stuff with oh, his mouth. Oh, my God. And, uh, and did this, this Spanish-speaking assistant to yeah. Benny, who was a, a character. We did a bunch of them. Did a bunch of characters. Cause it, like, but at that time, wasn't it on television yet? It was, he did that on radio. Right. On television, he would play like one one, one guy, you know, one guy, yeah, like like Frank Nelson would, uh, the you know the guy who always bothered. Are you are you trying to drive me crazy? Ooh, am I? But like it's it strikes me as odd that like later in your career that you know you you know are somewhat defined by the Simpsons voices and you have this amazing pedigree. It's lunatic, isn't it? And, yeah. and if you were writing it, you'd think there's a straight line between them, but there isn't. Or at know? least something planted. I mean, like, you you know, but you don't know. No, and I mean, I was doing, you know, little sketches with my friends into a tape recorder. Right. Even, well, probably right around the same time that I was working in the in the business. So it it was in me. Right, but yeah, but to sit there and watch, like, you know, Mel Blanc, who defined yeah. the voice. But he never said, here's how you do it. Right, right, but you could watch. You could watch it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you watch, you watch how people, especially in the Benny Show, you watched how people carried themselves as professionals. It's amazing, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I get so whacked out by it. Like if I do a live WT, if I do a live podcast, and I got four guys, Bill Hader, whoever, you know, st- sitting there. And I'm just sitting there, you know, being a host. And I'm watching that person. I'm watching the side of their head just talk to five, six hundred people. And then I hear the laughter. And I'm just seeing this guy who's just a guy. Mm-hmm. And there's this thing. There's this magic you can't explain. And it's like that show business. Like when you're standing backstage and you're about to go on to the stage, that moment where you're like, I'm gonna, that's, I'm just gonna go out there and do this. Like I don't ever think like it's showtime, but there's something so amazingly magic about it. Yeah, there is. It, it's. I mean, I I just did this play for almost two years and uh, standing. You know, I had my little routine of what yeah. I would do in the in the dark before I went out. You did. What'd you do? Uh, I I did exercises and then oh yeah I, yeah get the blood going. Well, I had to I had to dance. Oh yeah yeah. So I had to do ballroom. My character did ballroom dancing. So. Did you have to learn how to do that? <sighs> did I ever? Yeah. And was I an unwilling pupil? 
<laughs> but it's fun though once you once you figure out the steps right everything's fun once you figure it out i know but it's the dread of getting to the fun. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly right a lot of dread getting a lot of dread what do you mean i gotta go to the place yeah i gotta yeah. do the place and do the thing yeah oh. yeah but this guy this wonderful kid he was like in his mid-20s and he's a, a he's a dance coach on the english equivalent of uh dancing, dancing with the stars, the stars. Yeah. it's called strictly come dancing over there and he said the, he, it's almost like a threat he said and he's, he's just got this love of this stuff. He really, he just oozes it. Mm. And he said, you're not going to just dance. You're going to enjoy it. Uh, and I, about four weeks in, I said, fucking Matt Flint. It yeah. was right. It would have made me it. cry if he said that. <laughs> <laughs> it just a, I don't enjoy, don't push me. I don't enjoy anything. Yeah, don't push me to enjoy. I, I haven't enjoyed life and, you know. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're, okay, so now. Let's get from the credibility gap because we like we have. It's not that we have a lot to cover, but you want to talk about being a notoriously difficult person, <laughs> and you know, and and I'm glad you want to talk about that. Well, I'm willing to talk about. it. I don't yearn to talk about it. <laughs> I don't ache. I don't wake up in the morning saying, "Gee, I hope he asked me about being a notoriously difficult person today." Well, you've well, you've alienated some pretty uh, uh, seemingly talented and and at one time or another close friends. Uh, I believe they've alienated me. Of course you do, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is that, Doctor Marin's voice? It there, is, yeah. yeah. No, but when did you? What What is the the timeline? So you before you do well, obviously before you do Spinal Tap, you do you wrote with Albert. You wrote Real Life. Well, Real Life wrote wrote uh, co, co worked with him on the on all those short films he did for Saturday Night Live. Oh, right, you were in some of them, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I kind of remembering. Yeah, and so you guys were buddies, and he's yeah. sort of a genius, and yeah. you're your own genius. So. Working with him on real life, which I think is one of his best movies. Yeah, I do too. Personally. Yeah. What was that? What was the process? Um, was it mostly improvised? Was that No, like that was totally scripted. It was? Yes. Uh, and uh, Albert had an office on the, the what is now the Warner Brothers lot. Uh, and we'd go into his office every day. And um, normally I'd been the, the typist in every collaboration. Because I—that's the one thing I learned. When you were at, with the Gap, yeah, yeah. it was the one thing I learned in high school was how to type. So oh, I could I could just type jam. very fast, yeah, yeah, and not look, and, yeah. and just stuff would get down on paper very quickly. But Albert found it distracting. Typewriters are noisy. Yeah, uh, we didn't yet have the wonderful world we have today with sure. the silent keyboard of the computer yeah. and all the wonderful magic. Amazing, the future. The is. The future is just yeah. fabulous. So he's uh, so I wrote longhand. Yeah, and write this down the script longhand. Yeah. And it was him and me batting stuff around. And then uh, he'd stick around at night and this other writer would come in, Monica Johnson, mm -hmm. and they'd do some stuff. Mm -hmm. And we'd sort of meld what they came up with into what we were doing. And it was an interesting... Was Rob Reiner hanging around? Rob was around, not not while we were writing real life so much. Yeah. Uh, but Rob was a friend of David Landers again, so he'd come to see the Credibility Gap uh, shows that we would do. And he was a friend of Albert's from childhood. I he was a friend of Albert's from childhood, yeah. Right. So you write that with Albert, yeah. and then and then um, when does SNL start? When do you have the falling out with Albert? Is it after real life or later? Yeah, kind of. It began with the after real life. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's just I was uh, led to expect that I'd be playing a part in the movie, and then Albert said, "Well, I can't act with. I, I can't convince myself that you're another guy." So. And that was it. That began. That that was the. Yeah, and I had a, had a, a girlfriend at the time who knew Albert really well, and uh, I, she would see the problems I was having with Albert, and she said at one point, you know, you do realize he doesn't 
get that you're a separate person, right? <laughs> right. Just, yeah. You're just an extension of Albert. Yeah. 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 I got a, I got a dad like that. Yeah. So yeah. that that kind of went in. Um, but then uh, Lorne had. I'd gone with my buddies in the Credibility Gap to 30 Rock. Uh, we'd been uh, asked to do a sketch that was a takeoff on the Tom Snyder Tonight Show, a uh, Tomorrow Show, on the Tomorrow Show. And mid, uh, mid 70s? Yeah. The, as in the, in the summer, as Saturday Night Live was getting ready to go on the air. 75. Yeah. So Franken, like Franken was there, and Franken, and, uh, Franken and Davis. Franken and Davis were both there. So when he, we come in to do the, the Snyder bit, and we're hanging around 30 Rock, and so we go see O'Donohue and go see Al and Tom. And, you know Michael O'Donohue. Yeah, I knew yeah. Michael O'Donohue a little bit. Um, and so... And they were just trying to put that first show together. They were just trying to figure out anything. Yeah. And so a couple years later, uh, Lauren offered me a job writing on the show and i was writing out here i said i can write on television out here uh, i'm a writer performer so. so it's like 78 79 yeah but 77 oh yeah yeah so i'm working at that time with martin mullen for with tonight and i'm writing that was an amazing show that wonderful i barely show. remember wonderful show i was a young man yeah but i remember staying up for it that was a it was like there was that there was firm with tonight and there was a mary hartman mary hartman yeah mary hartman came first Right, and, and that was the spinoff. Yeah, kinda. Yeah, and then there was then another show spun off from Fernwood Tonight called America Tonight, which was basically the same show, but it would have celebrity guests. But that was a that was one of those ones where you know that thing that you were doing with the credibility gap, or the idea of cutting it close to the bone or presenting it as real as possible, was sort of taking hold a bit. A little bit. There was a wonderful moment. Uh, the first we're we're getting away from Saturday Night I'll Live get for back a moment. There. Uh, I love talking about Lauren. First. <laughs> <laughs> First week of, of of shows is in the bank at Fernwood Tonight. Yeah. And Fernwood Tonight was the weirdest collection of people. Yeah. I mean, you had Fred Willard. It was the first time I had a chance to watch Freddie work at, at great length and just be in stunned awe it's amazing, of right? his ridiculous, moronic talent. Uh, <laughs> it just defies any explanation or, or, or understanding. I, I can't imagine what would be seeing him that, as that young a man. Oh, and, he, his energy level was furious. And he come from that, what was his group Ace called? Trucking Company. Yeah, up in San Francisco, right? Yeah, he, he came from, I don't know where they found it. He was from Chicago. Oh, right. But, uh, yeah, and they did very, very broad material. Yeah. And I, I looked down on it a little yeah. bit. And then Credibility Gap. Lowbrow. Lowbrow. Yeah. Uh, and then Credibility Gap actually toured with Ace Trucking Company, uh, and I became an admirer because I got- Isn't it funny how karma works, Harry? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. So Freddie is on the show. Yeah. Martin Mull. Uh, Norman Lear produces, or executive produces it, and he hires some good writers, and then he hires to produce the show as the showrunner. Yeah. Alan Thick. <laughs> what? Alan Thick. Yeah. Uh, not known for humor. Not really known for humor. Not known for much. <laughs> He had, well, he's he's known for a few things behind yeah. the scenes, uh, and he's Robin Thicke's dad, of course, right. for the kids who are yeah, listening. Sure. Um, and Alan had been producing this show by this eighteen-year-old singing sensation in French Canada, Rene Simard. <laughs> so he, he would commute between Montreal, where he produced the Rene Simard show, and Hollywood, where he produced Firmwood Tonight, this hip thing. Yeah. Anyway, it's about a week of shows under our belt, yeah. and we have a meeting, and all hands are there to talk about, you know, which way the show is going. Because Martin and I think it's going a little uh, kind of 
uh, broad. Yeah. And we want it to be as you're. This is because you're saying close to the yeah. close to the line. And a guy named Ben Stein. Do you know yeah. who Ben Stein is? The speechwriter. Yeah. 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 Who's the you know the guy who became famous yeah. from Ferris Bueller? Yeah. He. Uh, had gotten hired by Norman Lear as a creative vice president. That's how goofy Norman Lear was. Well, he'd written a a, a, a praising review of Mary Hartman in the Wall Street Journal, and, and Norman Lear went, I love this guy. Yeah. Let's hire him. Yeah. That guy, he likes me. Yeah. He likes my shows. So <laughs> Ben is sitting here in this meeting, and Martin and I are saying, you know, Jesus, you know, there's this guy, there's this bit in an iron lung, and it's just a, we're we're going a little bit far down the road here towards yeah. broad. And the, what's funny about this show is, is this, this small town attempt to do a Tonight Show, just the, 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 the effort and the failure of the effort, but the earnestness of this mm-hmm. effort to put on a show without any of the wherewithal that would, you know, and the reality of that is what's funny. And nobody says a word, and then Ben pipes up and says, you know, this reality is okay for improv, but we're doing TV. And that was it? And that, that killed it. Oh. So I've always remembered Ben fondly for that moment. They're close. Yeah. And, yeah. and another obstacle yeah. to the realization of your vision. Just another one. Yeah, hey. you know. And then what happens with Lauren? So another couple years goes by. and then years. Do- John and Danny are leaving. Yeah. And uh, I guess- Are you friends with them? I did not know them. Yeah. Um, I met John a couple times. One time he kept trying to force me to, to drink something that I didn't want to drink. Yeah. And got, I mean, tried to force me. Like held you. Yes. Yeah. Almost sitting on me. Um, so I was I, I was aware of his power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not of anything else. Anyway. Uh, his strength and also the power that he turned on himself. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I had gotten two phone calls that summer. Yeah. And so I made uh, a trip to uh, follow up on both phone mm-hmm. calls. One was to Washington, D.C., where I was being... Uh, interviewed for the possibility of hosting Morning Edition, which was then starting on NPR. And I said, well, I'll see, but I have this other meeting in New York. Did you want to do comedy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But it was radio. Yeah. Um, And then I I meet with Lauren, and uh, he offers me, you know, the the slot in the the cast that is is going to be vacated by either John or Danny. He wasn't Mm -hmm. going to fill both of them. He just was going to fill one. So I said, okay. And uh, then the next time I came up to New York, I you know cleaned up my affairs in L.A., got prepared to move to New York, uh, and I meet Lauren in the uh, the auditorium of the Winter Garden Theater where he's producing uh, Guild Alive, mm-hmm. which is a, se- a series of sketches that uh, started on Saturday Night Live later to be a movie. The slogan of which was "Things like this only happen in the movies." And I'm thinking, no, it happened on stage and it happened on television. Why are you lying? <laughs> and Lauren sits in the audience, and the very first thing he says to me is, "And I'm hired. I'm. I, I'm. This yeah. is my welcome." Yeah. I've never hired a male Jew for the company before. I've kind of gone with the Chicago Catholic thing up to now. That's fair warning. Sure. <laughs> That's a nice. How do you do? That is kind of bizarre. Huh? It's peculiar. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. It is, it is a that's wonderful a, one. It's a good nugget. Yeah. Uh, then we had a, a little retreat. They had scheduled a retreat at this place called Mohunk. Uh-huh. So before the season started, we all got together and went up to this uh, retreat on the Hudson at Mohunk. And it was basically, they all knew each other, and it was I was the new guy. Uh, it was Bill Murray, uh, Garrett Morris, Lorraine Newman, Jane... Uh, <laughs> Curtin. Jane Curtin. And me. Mm-hmm. 
And wow. Al and Tom were featured players. Al's so fucking funny. And uh, no. and uh, <laughs> Tom Schiller was making films, yeah. who was a very funny guy. And uh, then Andy Kaufman was doing guest appearances that year, a lot of guest appearances with the wrestling stuff. So you're at this retreat, and yeah. what happens? Nothing much. I mean, I'm just trying to make some kind Lauren's of- Lauren's up there? Lauren's, of course, Lauren's up there. And he's walking around like what? Uh, like uh, the prince plant, of- like plant, the, Plantation owner? Yeah, the prince of tides. Uh-huh. And uh, I just make a little, uh, uh, you know, kind of here, I, here, here's who I am speech and say, you know, I, I come from this show business background and, and I think the the wonderfulness of this show is its liveness and uh, I've- been living on the west coast all these years and and there was a tradition in the old days of of network broadcasting that uh before tape and everything they would do a show for the east coast and then wait three hours and do the show again for the west coast and i just think the west coast is being deprived of this excitement and i think we should come back at 2 30 in the morning and do it again (laughs) that was your bit that was my bit did you get a laugh ah yes good um the last laugh i got there for a while uh it got so grim um, well, so, okay, you're back in New York. You're yeah, doing the show. And what's, yeah. what happened? What the hell went so wrong? Um, some games started being played. I wasn't, although I was hired as a member of the cast, Yeah, uh, I did not appear in the opening credits. Mm. Uh, you wanted to keep that Catholic, I guess. And uh, so three weeks in, I'm writing stuff every yeah. week. Uh, nothing gets on. Uh, and... Al is not writing for me. He's writing for Al. So, you know, Al's the only one who knows me. Uh-huh. Uh, so Bill Murray and I go to a Knicks game. And because he's a friendly guy. Yeah. And now we're walking back from the, from Madison Square Garden uh, to 30 Rock. Yeah. So we're walking about the 30, 40 blocks and we have a chance to talk. And I say, Billy, uh, what's going on? It feels like uh, something very strange is going yeah. on here. He says, "Well, you know, we're 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 members of this cast, and we're looking at this guy, and this new guy who comes in and writing stuff for himself, and we're going, why is he doing that?'" I said, "Because I was hired as a writer performer." He said, "Well, Lauren didn't tell us that. He just said he was hiring you as a writer. Uh-huh. So that's what he told the rest of the cast. Uh-huh. And I'm not in the credits, right? So I've signed a deal." to be something that nobody else knows at the show. Is it on paper that you're a writer-performer? Yeah, of yeah. course it is. Of course it is. So he's fucking with you. Yeah, from from the get-go, from from the jump. So, and then Billy tells me about how rough a time he had when he started. He says, you know, it'll get better, so he's trying to be helpful. Um, you like him? I like Billy. Yeah. Yeah, I've always liked him. And he was he's he's been a mensch when I've needed him a couple times, so. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, even though he doesn't know what the word mention means because he's Catholic, but you know he, uh, he, got he knows. Idea. He knows. No, he's he's a good guy, um, and it just goes on like this. And and uh, uh, I write. Paul Schaefer and I write a piece, a really abstruse piece, called Backers Audition on a week that um, B. Arthur is the guest host, yeah. and the premise is it's a Backers Audition for a Broadway rock musical about. Uh, Charles Manson and one of the people he killed, Hollywood hairdresser Jay Sebring, and uh-huh. it's called Two Men. Yeah. And Paul write Paul and I write the lyrics and music and it and we did them write the, and we're the we're the guys presenting the show. Mm-hmm. B is the hostess, you know, with a room full of angels who might invest in it, and all the cast are present are singing. And uh at the party, so called, 
I prefer to think of it as something more funereal, but that, that follows every show. Uh, Lorne says from his throne on high, the moment at the end of that sketch, that's the moment you became a star. I wasn't on the air for the next four weeks. <laughs> I mean, it's just just a little game going on. Yeah. Um, one more story. Late in the season, uh, I'm, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying to myself, I'm smart. I can figure this guy out. I can, I can play this game. I can, I can game him. Yeah. So every week I come in with a new strategy that I've devised, and every week it just fails because he's. But in your mind, it's it, you, it's you and Lauren. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's told me that. Yeah. I don't hire people like you. Yeah. Plus, he's hired. I produced a TV show. I produced this pilot with Rob Reiner, the, the TV show where Spinal Tap came from. Yeah. I've done it. Yeah. I know how to do this. Right. His mistake to hire somebody who knows how to produce television shows. Right. Because uh, I'm looking at this thing and going, you know, uh, so much time and effort is wasted. Uh, the other thing I did is I read Max Liebman's book. Max Liebman had produced a television show. Tell me if this format sounds familiar. 90 minutes, Saturday night, comedy sketches from Studio 8H in New York City with uh, musical numbers in between, live. Yeah. On NBC. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Duh, wow. Yeah. How did anybody think of that? Yeah. It was called Your Show of Shows. It starred Sid Caesar and Carl Reiner. It had been done in the 50s. Yeah. And Max Liebman was the producer, and he wrote a book about it. Uh-huh. They started writing their sketches first thing Monday morning. Oh, by the way, the writing staff included Mel Brooks and Neil Simon and Woody Allen. Right. That was a that was a help. Hell of a show. Yeah, hell of a show. They started writing that show first thing Monday morning. End of Monday, they got a script. Rest of the week, that's the show they rehearse. They learn it. Mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live, you're a, a sucker if you even come in on Monday. Writing begins late night, Tuesday night. It's a dorm kind of. It's kind yeah. of kind of a dorm vibe. Yeah. Don't you like a dorm vibe? Right. You know. So it's like I came. I come in at ten. Tuesday evening, people would look at me like I was nuts, you know? What are Too you doing? early. Yeah. You're supposed to be staying up. It's, yeah, you know, Saturday yeah. Night Live. Read-through isn't until Wednesday afternoon because people have to sleep most of Wednesday because they were up all all night. Yeah. Camera blocking starts Thursday, Friday. There's no time to rehearse. And by the way, Lauren puts into production th- a third more sketches than are going to survive and doesn't choose which ones are going to survive until 11.20 Saturday night. So there's no commitment all the way down the line. People don't bother to learn lines because why would you for a sketch that there's a one in three chance won't make air? And by the way, you know, the best way to make sure that nobody second guesses you or argues with you is to not make decisions until panic sets in at 1120. And what the fuck are we doing? What show? Why is the show we're doing tonight? Yeah. And, you know, the crew was waiting. They have to figure out what camera blocking to do because they camera blocked everything. And they've, you know, now have to figure out all these logistical things in the space of I wonder if he still does it like I that. don't know I mean the crew did an amazing job every week just pulling that this off. was like a crazy time like I mean it was... this was coke time as yeah. they say yeah uh, so the last the last story was uh, Lorne invites me to take a sauna with him oh, uh, this is a good story already <laughs> I figure fuck okay you're on we uh, do a schwitz gonna have a schwitz, do a schwitz like the, the emperor like the Jews do yeah and uh, he says, you know, what's what's uh, what's on your mind? I said, so well, you're in the Schwitz talking. I'm in the Schwitz talking. And I say, you know, there's a sketch this week um, featuring Sadat. 
who was then the president of Egypt. Yeah. And I said, you know, you've seen this piece from the TV show, this show that I produced. Billy Crystal did Menachem Begin and I did Anwar Sadat. And we were doing a, a light beer commercial arguing yeah. about whether the beer was better because it was, you know, yeah. less filling or more yellow. Right. And you, you've seen that piece. You know I do a great Sadat. Garrett Morris is doing it. Yeah. Because he's dark-skinned and Sadat is about eight shades lighter than him anyway. But, you know, I, it just stuff like that drives me crazy. He said, I'll take care of that. I'll make a phone call. I'll call Al. Al was, a, at that point, head writer. This is Friday night. So I walk in Saturday at noon. It never happened. And the denouement of it is, so I'm sitting, I'm, I'm an extra in this sketch, and I'm waiting with Garrett to go on 20 seconds before live air, and he turns to me and says, you do, Sadat. How does he sound again? Oh. So it's not a good experience for you that first time. <laughs> <laughs> but those stories, like, I mean, I've, you know, no one is willing to, to sort of, everyone's very diplomatic within yeah. the last 15 years of those casts. And I've talked to a well, lot of people. Well, because Lauren has just gotten more and more powerful. Why wouldn't you be? You I want, guess that's true. You know, he controls New York show business at but this it, point. It, he controls a good chunk of, you know, national show business. No, no. And he's got I mean, The Tonight Show. He's the got tonight, the Tonight Show. He's got back. the Tonight Show. Yeah. All right, but but the thing is, is that I always assume that I would have done exactly what you did, which is take it personally. How can you not take? <laughs> how it can personally? you? How can you not take it personally? Well, a lot of people seem to play along with the with the craziness. They just become codependent to the situation. I know. I I never understood, for example, how Phil Hartman could take eight years of that. Uh, I just, of course, you have a wife with a gun at your yeah. head. But, but uh, seriously, I I just I loved Phil, and I thought he was a huge talent. I never understood how you could put up with that for eight years. Well, th well, then how did you come back to the show? Spinal Tap was invited on as a musical guest uh, when the movie came out, and by this time Lauren was gone. We come on. So now you've had you've made your own success. Yeah, this was a this just changed the game of everything. Spinal Tap changed culture. It, it become it's an an identifier. Yeah, everybody knows it. Yeah. Turn it to 11, guys, whatever it is. Guys decide on, on whether they're, they're going to continue dating their girlfriend by whether she gets spinal tap. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, <laughs> it, 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 it really is it's deep. Yeah. It goes deep into, uh, into the American psyche. So you're a guy now. And, you, and the English psyche, by the way. Yeah, oh, I bet. Yeah. Of course. So now you're a guy. Yeah, so Dick Ebersole took over. He's producing the show. And uh, we're... We're treated really well. We're we're the musical guests, you know. We're treated really well. But you're also comedians. You're all genius comedians. Yeah, but we're we're just we're yeah. treated nicely. And so I figure, God, things must have changed. Yeah. Although there was one little moment that uh, should have tipped me off. We're we're doing a uh, you know one of their endless backstage sketches where they're around lockers, you know, off stage, yeah. and uh, we're we're watching it being camera blocked, so we're not on stage yet. We're behind the cameras. And uh, uh, Julie Louis Julie Louis Dreyfus, and she's funny. She is funny. She's great. And I guess Mary Gross. Mm -hmm. We're we're doing a scene. We're doing the front part of the scene, and they're dressed in bathrobes because yeah. they're not. You know, they're supposed to be backstage. And suddenly, Dick is is out there on on the floor. He puts a fifty dollar bill on top of the lens of the A camera and says, "This is for the first one whose uh, tits fall out of their robe during the blocking." Uh -huh. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. He comes from ABC Sports, you know. Oh, yeah. It's going to happen with those sports guys. <laughs> those sports guys, they've yeah. been in the truck too long, yeah. you know. <laughs> Just trapped in the truck for too many years. Uh, the truck being their brain. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I, uh, Dick invites Chris, Michael, and me to join the cast. Michael passes. Chris and I say yes. Uh, I figure, based on the Spinal Tap experience, it's going to be different. Uh, Billy comes in because he'd been a, a regular guest. Yeah. And Marty yeah. Short, uh, who was a friend of Paul's, and and you Paul, go back with him. So you, no, I but Paul had just told me how great Marty right. was, and I'd watched him on TV, of course. And uh, and there was this really bizarre kabuki that happened when we all assembled, except for Jim Belushi. I'm sorry, except for Jim Belushi. Yeah. Uh, Dick said, "I I, I want to. I'm keeping Mary Gross and Julia, but I want another." Uh, female member of the cast. Mm-hmm. So uh, you guys get to help me choose. What? So now we're having this bizarre set of meetings with women, uh, Gina Davis among them, the wonderful Gina Davis, who was put through this embarrassing ritual. Uh, and it comes down to you know two people and we get to vote and it's really like, oh, really? This is different? And we think it's really different so we take advantage of the situation and say, you know what? Uh, this show's got its audience now. We, yeah. we don't need to have these stupid guest hosts for ratings every week who can't do comedy, right. and most of whom are politicians just trying to humanize their image. Uh-huh. That Why are we serving that? Why don't right. we just be a, a really great comedy show? you got all the talent you need here to fill 90 minutes. Let's Let's kick ass. And so the first week of that season, there was no guest host. And we figure, and that was the week that we did uh, synchronized swimming, that's uh, legendary. Yeah. And we figure, all right, we're in Clover. Yeah. And by week three, we're back to guest hosts. And Jesse Jackson is the guest host. And half of Operation Push is taking our desk because they figured out they can make free long distance calls from NBC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, it was, and, you know, Dick had said to me when he hired me, I know you're going to do uh, most of the political comedy here. So I, I'm really de- going to depend on you for that. And so I write these Reagan sketches, and week after week after week, I get into Reagan makeup, and the sketch is put into the production, and it never makes air. Uh-huh. And uh, it just gets more and more depressing. And uh, we do one more. Why do you think that was? I have no idea. I have no clue. There was no conspiracy? I have no. I don't think. Conspiracy? To keep Reagan material off the air? I don't know. No. No. This is show business. Nobody cares about show business. Yeah. Uh, Saturday Night Live? Who gives a fuck what sketch appears on Saturday Night Live? Except the <laughs> idiots at Saturday Night Live. So I just, it was it was getting me down. And uh, uh, we, Chris and I and Marty and Billy did one more really good piece, which was the uh, 60 Minutes, oh, Make, Make, Make My Novelties, yeah. Marty, Marty uh, as Mr. Th- uh, Thurm. Yeah. And, you know, it was clear that what we loved to do was film pieces on a live show. Yeah. We were absolutely in tension with the, the format, yeah. you know, but we were getting away with it for a little while. And, yeah. then, and then, you know, Dick was walking around saying, you know how much that synchronized swimming piece cost? Right. I'm thinking, I didn't produce it. Don't yeah, blame yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wrote it. Right. Go blame the producer. <laughs> yeah. She rented the pool. <laughs> <laughs> rented the pool. That was the big cost. No. Yeah, I don't know what the cost sure. was. Anyway, so at... Uh, about one forty-three on the uh, morning of June, J- January thirteenth, which was the first night of the first batch of shows after Christmas vacation, Dick called me into his office and he said, uh, "You're not happy here." And 
and, and we're not happy either. And I said, okay, well, just let me go and pay me the money you owe me. And he said, okay. And that was it? That was it. And uh, the I, I cleared out of New York. I, you, nobody has ever, no, no mafiosi on the run has cleared out of New York City faster than I did. But I was, <laughs> so I was sitting in my, my uh, sublet in uh, Tribeca on the floor because all the furniture had gone already. And uh, I got a call from AP that Monday morning saying, uh, we, we have word that, uh, according to NBC, you've uh, left the show because of creative differences. Do you have any comment? It's, it's true, I think was they, they asked me. And I blurted it out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I was creative and they were different. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was it. That was the joke. That was the joke. What's uh, the problem with a joke? So you and Chris are okay. Yep. You he understands you. I understand him. I it took me a long time. And you uh, and Michael are okay. Hmm? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because as the bass player yeah. in two movies. I know, I'm supposed to get along with everybody. Yeah. Listen. Sometimes you're you're that, sometimes you're Python. Okay. You know? Sure. I mean, the Pythons, the only reason the Pythons got together was because they'd lost a, a million pound lawsuit. Otherwise, they wouldn't. And I think got, John needed money. They all needed money. They, they had lost a million pound lawsuit. You mean just the recent live shows? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's the only reason they did that. Two, two of the guys told me that. Ugh. Because they, they don't like each other. So, right. You well, know. It's weird when show business gets ugly, isn't well, it? But I, I mean, I, okay. Why? Well, I, I don't know. Why? What? What? what what's the matter? I, I'm not going to discuss it on the air. Okay. But with Lauren, yeah. Oh, I'll discuss it till the cows come home. But you're done with that. Oh, long since. And I, you know, I mean, I don't talk about it unless somebody brings it up. I, I have no interest in, in propagating. Uh, you know, the. Well, the, no, I the, like I like uh, SNL stories. But when he came back, you never heard from him again, and that was that, right? Who, Lauren? Yeah. No. No, 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 no. Nor, nor would I expect to. You know, somebody came out with a, a list when this season began of yeah. ten people that uh, SNL should have back as guest hosts to, to because the show's in trouble, and they put my name on the list, and I resisted the temptation to write back and say, "The good Lord hasn't made enough wild horses." <laughs> but now you like it's just sort of interesting. And Bob Balaban, he's a friend friend of yours. I know him. I'm like him. You just work with him. Yeah. Yeah, he's great, isn't he's he? He's wonderful. He's so funny. Because I always assume everybody's buddies. I have friends in English comedy, too, because I've been working in England. Yeah, like uh, who? Uh, this guy, Harry Enfield, is one of the funniest people I've ever met. A yeah. lovely guy. Does the most amazing characters. He and his partner did this great thing. Oh, I've got to look him up. I feel like I, I met him maybe. Harry and Paul. Yeah. Uh, they do wonderful stuff. And they BBC's Channel 2 celebrated its 50th anniversary, and they got to do a joke tribute show with joke clips of uh-huh. the history of a television network which is just like what a great wow. gig and it's it and harry just did the lion's share of of piss takes of all these iconic british television characters so you're just, making new friends in britain yeah yeah and you've got some friends yeah i do all right i got a lot of friends in new orleans don't don't have to, more music friends than right i have more music friends than comedy and friends. the simpsons did you very well financially uh, you know, I, I have to say about this, something that I learned from uh, my six years of uh, analysis, of psychoanalysis, which is one mark of, of adulthood, is that you can, you can hold two conflicting emotions about the same thing at the same time. Uh, two things can be true at the same time. Of course. So uh, 
it is true that as a um, actor on a insanely successful TV series, I am by any standards of the human species obscenely overpaid. Yes. It is also true that as an actor on one of the most insanely successful television series of all time, I am getting royally screwed. <laughs> Both things are true. But you, you earn a good living. Mm-hmm. I make, I, yeah, I'm comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to turn the joke around. But but you've got you got a bit of a reputation for being difficult there. But it seems to me that, that a lot of that was righteous. It was a righteous fight. Um, you know, I happen to be the guy who uh, sort of was in the lead uh, in uh, when negotiating time came. Mm-hmm. I I I don't necessarily enjoy fights, but I don't shrink from them. Right. And uh, when you're negotiating. Uh, money with Rupert Murdoch and a couple other extremely um, <laughs> yeah. lucre-oriented people. Uh-huh. Um, you're in a fight. You're in a you're in a you're in a bar fight, if not a, a bum fight. <laughs> right. But yeah. But the truth that you were uh, the the idea. I don't know what really happened, but it seems with any of those things. Read my book. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. What's the, what's the book called? No, I'm, I don't even know. I'm just writing pages right now. I'm, I have no idea. <laughs> you, know, you haven't written a book yet. I'm writing pages right now. As we speak? No, as we speak, I'm talking to you. But Yeah. yeah. So you're saying that, uh, uh, what, is it everybody's fault? It's not your fault? Why, why do you think you get that? Uh... It's, it's nobody's fault. Okay. It's, it's, it's what happens if you think you know what you want mm-hmm. and you are determined to get it. Uh, in terms of how something looks or how something is performed or how something is staged or how something is framed. Uh, and yeah, you have to earn your spurs to be in a position to say that. But um, yeah, I'll give you, uh, you know, and and you also have an aesthetic case to make. Uh, so you- if you have a point of view and you have a, a way you think it should be, that's how you get a reputation as, as being a difficult person. Yeah, because you want it done that way. Right. I'll give you a great example. Okay. Also from Saturday Night Live. Uh, this, there was a sketch that I did with Howard Hessman. I wrote it for him uh, where he's a visiting actor plugging the fact that uh, WKRP in Cincinnati is changing his time slot. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a morning DJ. It's a character I yeah. later reprised in Wayne's World too. Um, actually that was based on this sketch. Um, and I'm the morning DJ who's got a million things to do and is paying no attention to the guest. That's the basic idea. So I come onto the stage where we're camera blocking this and, um, they have a table and a mic on a little circular stand sitting on the table. Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, that's a temp, right? He said, no, that's, that's the mic for the sketch. I said, but... This is a radio studio. Mics hang down. They're not on a desk because people put their hands on the desk. You do. Yeah. Uh, I say we're at 30 Rock. There are four radio stations, two (laughs) floors above us. Go get a boom. Take an elevator ride. Go look. Do that. Okay. And I don't even raise my voice. Mm -hmm. I don't even. But for the rest of the week, if there's any delay in any camera blocking, what is it attributed to? Oh, it's Harry's mic. We're waiting on Harry's mic. It's a joke now. Yeah, it's a joke. Yeah. It's a joke that I want it to look right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I I understand that. And I, I think that, that that's an interesting, it's a difficult situation in that somebody who's, who's stubborn because of their vision, 
uh, you know, really has to get that vision through. Yeah. To where they win. Yeah. And they're like, so so enough people behind you can go. He was right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and and by the way, I'm doing it in a in a in a forum that I don't control, where the dominant aesthetic is not. Let's make it look real. Mm-hmm. Where the dominant aesthetic is, hey, you can look like uh, yeah President Ford with a mustache or President Nixon with a mustache. Who cares? Yeah. You know, that's the aesthetic of that show. He's building stars. He's not making uh, credible sketches. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's certainly what seems to be happening now. Yeah. Uh, on the other the hand. Last 20 years. On the other hand, again, with this Nixon show, you know, everybody got it. Everybody got that. That thing is beautiful. That's David Frost on there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I didn't really know what to expect from it. And it's uh, it looks great. And it's meticulous. And, and you're, like, what I like about the way you're doing it is that it's not an impression. No. It's, yeah, it's a it's a piece of acting. It is, it is, and and everybody got top to bottom on that crew. Nobody had to be brought aside and told, you know, it has to look real, don't you think? They all got it immediately. They got the, the they they went and researched how the Oval Office looked during Nixon's administration. Here's how far it went. I called a friend of mine at, at uh, CBS in Washington. I said, "What were the cameras that they were using to shoot the uh, resignation speech?" He said, "They were Norelco, whatever they were." My crew goes and finds the one guy in England who has two working copies of the camera. Harry needs a Norelco. Flies two Norelcos, please. Two Norelco cameras, this guy. A, a, a and a backup. And they fly him down. They bring him down to London with his cameras. He operates one of the cameras. They're, they're still working, so you can still see the gray, the black and white image really? of the eyepiece. Yeah. It's like time travel. Yeah. And then I said to the guy at CBS, and what was the logo that they had on the, the version of the CBS logo they had on the cameras? In those, so it's the, and they all got that that was... That's what the worth, that's the vision. That's the that's worth doing. That yeah. it was worth doing. It looks great. Yeah, and it's you know it's the fight, endless fight against nobody'll notice. Yeah, I'll notice. Yeah, I'm not nobody. <laughs> but it does make a difference. It does make a difference. Yeah. When the actors walked on that set, it was a 360 set. Mm-hmm. They all said, "Ooh, I feel different now just being here." Really? Yeah, that's great, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that your vision is being respected and honored. (laughs) In England. Yes. Some people got to go to England. Yeah. If you're difficult, go to England. So what brought you to New Orleans? Uh, I went to the Jazz Fest one spring. What year is that? 1988. Okay. And uh, fell in love with the city. Uh Uh-huh. Literally, it was like the city whispered uh, uh, a message in my ear and I understood the language. And, and you're like, fuck it, I'm moving. Yeah. Well, I took me took me a while, but I'm I'm coming here as often as possible was the first thing I decided. Uh it's like, oh my God, this is the real deal. Now, um there are some personal reasons why that may be. Um I'm an only child of a tiny little family in an, in the most atomized city on the planet, Los Angeles. You know, it's the city of individualism writ, uh-huh. writ large, writ on billboards on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, and New Orleans is a tightly knit community, uh-huh. not a virtual community, right. a real community right. where strangers talk to each other and people, you know, when you're in the in the market or in the drugstore, uh, you've got to b- bargain for about three times as long to get your business done because people are going to be talking to you mm-hmm. and visiting with you. It's like small town. Yeah, except it's a city. Right. Um, and then there's all the other stuff. But I mean, so it, it spoke to me on a lot of levels. It spoke to me on the level of people pursue their their chosen um, 
art there, not to get rich, not to get famous, but because that's what they have to do. Mm-hmm. That's why they play music. That's why they paint. That's why they write. It's it's a lot of heart, a lot of soul, a lot mm-hmm. of heart, a lot of soul. So for people who've been in the Hollywood machine a lot, uh, it's it's almost soul restoring to be there mm-hmm. and to be back in touch with that reality uh, after all this. You know, the thing that we uh, you saw the documentary uh, that Joan Rivers uh, did, the Joan Rivers documentary, a piece of work. Mm-mm. You didn't. Oh my God, it's it's fantastic. And the thing that she had the balls to show in that film was what all of us spend most of our time keeping the public from seeing, which is the fucking desperation. Yeah. She put it out there. And that's the desperation, not of, oh God, it's hard to do this work. It's the desperation of this fucking business. Yeah. And so when you go to someplace where people aren't filled with that, aren't having to surmount that to get the work done they're just getting the work done mm-hmm. they may never be famous they may never be known outside of the city but they're getting their work done mm-hmm. and they're and they're that's what they live for mm-hmm. that's very moving and very very restorative and how is the um the the community around you and the city itself recovering from uh, katrina even now it's a work in progress um you know one mark of the success of the city is how many arguments are being had about uh, uh, uh gentrification now right uh you know they're not about mickey mousification of the city anymore they're about god all these new people are moving in and uh jacking up the cost of property and, mm-hmm. and they don't know our folkways to which i say let's make a video when they when they get a house here here's here's what we do so what ultimately ended up happening was not the 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 weird sort of uh, corporate annihilation but but sort of like piecemeal upscale people moving into areas that were... kids 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 feeling feeling this is a place where there's a lot of opportunity mm-hmm. and there are these neighborhoods that are you know undiscovered which means poor people were living there and uh so you know that what i tell my friends in new orleans is i, I remind them that it's had a 300 year history as a port city always welcoming all comers then we had a about a 50 year history as a very self-protective city in decline uh where we got very you know kind of ooh, don't touch our don't mm-hmm. touch our thing and now we're back to being kind of open again in a very very true way and that's it, positive i think over overall it's positive there 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 are stresses in any situation where you know new, yeah. new people come into a community and a community as I say, is a real community with real roots and real yeah. interconnections. Real history. Real history and real traditions. Yeah. I mean, the first time newcomers called the police to complain that there was a brass band in their street playing music outside and that's, that's disturbing be. the peace, that was sort of the alarm bell is, oh, we got to deal with this now. Yeah, but the, that, yeah. I, on the list of problems that that city could have had right. in the wake of that flood, that's so far down the, the line. But is, it is bouncing back. A bit. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Oh, good. It's great. And how's your health? I'm feeling good. Yeah? Yeah. You look great. Thank for you. For 70. Thank you. Everything's Play. like okay? Yeah. Good. Everything works? <laughs> good. Everything works so far? And and what's your what's your uh, fascination with the Bohemian Grove? Well, you know, uh, when you find out that there's... Growing up in Southern California, this was always someplace you heard about, yeah. uh, this secretive retreat the, in Northern California. The wealthy... The, the, the rulers of the world go dressed like ladies. And yeah, and place. cavort and get naked and yeah. piss on redwood trees. And... Yeah. and um, but this came to me, uh, a couple uh, filmmakers, female filmmakers came to me with an idea of would I write a script about it. 
So I did some research, went up to San Francisco, got into the Bohemian Club's uh, archives, yeah. and then wrote a script, and uh, then had the good, good fortune to be invited. Uh, they were, I guess, trying to young up and or Jew up their membership, and I yeah. got invited to uh, a weekend there. So I actually got to go there and, and fact check my script, and uh, and I made this little film. It's a, a, a self financed, uh, incredibly independent film uh, with some wonderful, you know, I I was trying to be true to the the uh, concept, so I had to uh, basically cast it with only funny guys. Yeah. Uh, so there's a marvelous gallery of the. What's it called? Uh, it was called Teddy Bear's Picnic. Because okay. I thought, if you go out in the now, woods today, you're in for a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, but Kenny Mars, Fred Willard, Michael McKean, just wonderful people. When you were at the Grove, though, were you sort of like let down? Was it sort of like, Ugh. No, it was pretty much what I, had, what I had been led to believe by the research and pretty much what I had written. But it's not nefarious. It's, it's every once in a while, you know, there, the, the one that's always cited is the Manhattan Project was... Yeah. hatched there so once every 50 years they decide to build an atomic bomb you know um but most the mostly it's it's silly it's uh people who are rich and powerful uh basically deciding that they are going to spend a valuable week of their life reverting to the sophomore year of college but the hijinks are at a much higher price point mm-hmm. so when they do their big shows they have the san francisco symphony playing the orchestra and those guys attend and you know it's just and they get drunker than skunks the the head of uh one of the fortune 500 companies was uh you know found face down on the golf course saturday morning from having passed out the night before i mean they just loved it it's, get it's, your face. and then they go across the river and hang with some hookers mm-hmm. and it's just you know i'm i'm pleased to say that the movie while it didn't break box office records anywhere else did break box office records at the little theater right across the river from Bohemian Grove because they all went (laughs) that's good yeah I guess like well the last question or the last idea a window to talk about the process of doing the Christopher Guest movies that you know in, in terms of doing those you know tremendous long improvised scenes in character I mean what would you say to somebody who wants to know oh let's say it's me <laughs> so how did how does that go man you guys they just turn the cameras on and you usually you just you just start with something or or, or we do scenes chris has got an idea chris says almost nothing uh the only direction i've ever gotten from chris in the three of his movies i've been was in uh, for your consideration where i'm playing an actor yeah. who thinks he's there may be some awards buzz about him and so he's got the big head and uh, Fred Willard is the host of an Entertainment Tonight type show. Yeah. And he's coming to interview me uh, for promo about the film that we're making. And so I'm sitting across from <laughs> Freddie. Yeah. And just as before we start shooting, Chris puts his arm around me and says three words. Don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get run over by the Willard machine. <laughs> Don't fight it. <laughs> Don't even try. That's what you go into a scene with. Uh, otherwise, it's it's scary. You know, I'd never been in one of them from the beginning. I, my, for various reasons, my part would always start after production had begun. So for your consideration, I'm there from the first day when everybody's in the makeup room yeah. you know, going, I'll get, I'll get the teeth this time. I'll get the mustache. I'll get the funny hair. I'll get the, I'll get the ears. And uh, I'm listening to Catherine O'Hara and she's saying, Jesus, I don't know. 
believe I'm doing this fucking thing again. Why am I doing this? This scares the shit out of me. And I'm thinking, wow, Catherine O'Hara is scared of this. Yeah. Whew, that's a relief. Everybody's scared of it. It's very scary. Um, But you look around, there's no, absolutely no pressure and absolutely 100% trust. I think that's why Chris isn't making these anymore is because he's not getting that level of trust from up above so he can't transmit it to us. Right. It's he trusts in us, we trust each other. We all are in a conspiracy to trust the audience. So th- there's never any, you know, hey, we've been running for 20 seconds. I'm not hearing any jokes here, people. Right. None of that. He's got a year to find the funny stuff, you know. Right. And you and you just you make your own character choices. You make your own character choices. They he give he and Gene or whoever he's writing with give you certain parameters. You make your wardrobe, you make your makeup choices, you make your you can add to the backstory if you want. The more you bring in, the happier he is. Like in Mighty Wind was the dressing the woman that was that was from Chris and Gene Levy. I I came in for a meeting one day and Chris said, I got a little surprise for you. Look at the last card in the thing on the board yeah. and it was just like a great gift. It was just very funny because you played it so straight. Well that's the only way I knew how to do it, you yeah, know? Yeah. It's it's uh but you look around the room and there are these wizards, you know. There's Catherine. There's She's Fred. Amazing, there's yeah. there's Higgins. There's all. The, I don't want to slight yeah, anybody. Yeah. You can go down the whole list. They're the A team. They are the A team of this. Of this. And so, you realize, you know, you you only have one job as Chris presents it to you. Tell the story of this scene. Yeah. He's hired funny people to do it, so something funny is going to happen. But your job is to tell the story of this scene. You don't have to say anything if you can get happening what you want to what your character needs to have happen in that scene without saying it you don't have to say a word yeah you can do funny reactions or or real reactions uh, uh, but there that that is to say the only pressure is self-applied yeah you know the right. only pressure is from within nobody is it's it's such it's the only way you could do that i can right. imagine well it's the only it's the only place it happens so perfectly yeah, a lot of people try it a yeah, lot of people that's true. emulate it and and I don't think with a marked degree of success because you have to have a a really carefully selected group of people. Everybody thinks they can do it. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that I always say to people is, you know, you have to understand there's a big difference between improv and ad-libbing. Mm-hmm. Ad-libbing is talking, improv is listening. And Interesting, yeah. if you're not prepared to spend a lot of your time on the set listening, you know, don't do this because it's the, Cause you're gonna, what, be, you're gonna blow the scene. Well, what comes out of your mouth is based on what goes into your ears, right? Now with Spinal Tap, though, that was Rob, but what, we had all decided that we were going to do the movie that way, not because we sat down one day and said, "Let's do an improv film." We were trying to figure out how to make this film look real. Who and wanted that? We all wanted it. Okay, and and we all had tried writing a script. And we looked at it after about three days and thought, well, A, you know, the studio isn't going to understand this anyway. Right. They look at this. So B, why don't we just go shoot it as a as a demo? And how do we make this look real? This writing is not going to ever get the, what, the feeling that we want. Let's just go do it. I hadn't come out of an improv experience. The Credibility Gap wrote every sketch we ever wrote. First time I improvised was in Spinal Tap. And what about Chris? I don't know if Chris had done improv before. Not Michael hadn't. So was and 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 Rob was at the the helm. Why was who's was his idea? 
No, uh, the four of us had been the TV show that I mentioned that we did a pilot. Yeah. Uh, Spinal Tap had made a, a little brief appearance in that, right? And we're we're supposed to be at the end of our song. We're supposed to be covered with smoke, mm-hmm. and, and a Busby Berkeley sequence where we're lying on the floor, shot from above, mm-hmm. and instead of smoke, the prop guy fucks up, and hot oil is coming down on us. <laughs> hot drops of hot oil, and so we have two choices: we can either kill the what prop guy, or or talk about what what else do we do with these characters and since killing prop men is illegal in california yeah. we decided to talk about what else we could do with these characters we thought well let's see if we can make a it, and rob was part of that yeah rob uh, was, was was making that rob was, was making that show oh he's making the show yeah and uh, because he went an entirely different direction really, yeah with his uh directing yeah but what but he was definitely part of the whole process absolutely and 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 out of that because Chris had not been doing them previous to that. I mean, that was sort of that was sort of the first one, wasn't it? Uh, uh, of, of that, that type ilk. of movie, of that you know, the long form improv. Well, movie. I mean, I think John Cassavetes' movies. Well, yeah, had yeah. been improvised. But I mean, comedically, comedically, yes. And then Mike Lee, right, in England, uh, he built those great movies, great movies, and yeah. he built them on improv. They they would do a year of improv, right, and then they he'd but specifically it. comedy. Yeah, specifically comedy, and specifically that style. Yeah. I, I guess we were the first. Good. Yeah. It's nice to be the first of something, right? It's good to be the first. Let me, before I go, is the show is still on. The show is still on. Some outlets don't have it anymore. Some, oh, some outlets don't have it anymore, but it's a podcast. There you go. Podcast rule, baby. That's I, You're telling me. I'm telling you. Save my life. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad that's still going. Thank you. And uh, I'm happy that you're not... Look, I didn't know what I was going to get when you were coming over here. What? I don't know. People are like, oh, he's difficult. <sighs> I'm a sweetheart. That's what I just, that's I, a one guy I trust said that. You know, you could talk to the people that uh, at in England where yeah. we did this Nixon show. Sure. This was the most, you know, arduous experience producing a show, writing a show, starring in it, uh, four hours of makeup every day, having this incredibly yeah, in, I, impenetrable dialogue to learn. You know, they all they all had a good time. Yeah, no, I you know I know how these things get started. They're not based on anything, maybe one or two people's experience. But I, I appreciate the fact that you were such an asshole. You had to leave our country to get love. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> true that, true that, baby. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. All right, that's it, Harry Shearer. Being you know the first one I've ever talked to to honestly. Well, that's not true. Brewer too. Who had some, you know, you know, not necessarily completely upbeat things to say about SNL, and uh, and you know, it was a great conversation. I was uh, I was honored that he was here. Uh, he's done a lot of great work, Harry Shearer. Go to wtfpod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on the mailing list. Check the calendar for tour dates in your area. You can leave comments through Facebook. On the, uh, on the site there, you can check the merch. We're going to have new posters. Posters are, are being made for every stop on my tour, so we'll stock up that stuff in the merch store once we get done with that. What else, man? I can't get enough of this pedal, I'll tell you that. I'm going to piss my neighbors off. It's fucking 1039 at night. Maybe I should pull back. Boomer lives!